I think this is the longest series of lectures in the history of ISKCON on the first chapter. <laughs> and you were there. You are actually experiencing it personally <laughs> in Kumiville. So here we go. I, uh, I promised you or warned you, we are going to have some interesting verses this time. And so let's see where we left off. Arjun has begun giving his arguments against the fight, saying that we understand how bad this is. So even though the other side is fighting, they don't understand, they're ignorant, but we're not ignorant. So why should we do what ignorant people do? And of course, the answer is that, well, there was an intelligent reason to fight. The, on the other side, they were fighting for the wrong reason, but there were right reasons to fight. Okay, so now I think, let's see. We, we I think we left off around, um, okay, so I'll just maybe just uh, do chapter one, text 3940, just to kind of remind you of context. So in text 39, Arjuna says, Kulakshaye, he's saying when communities are destroyed, because if the battle goes on, then, you know, whole families, extended communities are going to be destroyed in this battle. So Kulakshaye Pranashanti Kuladharma Sanatana, the eternal dharmas are destroyed when the family is destroyed. Dharma Nashte, and when Dharma is lost, Kulan Kritsnam, the entire community, Adharma Vivatyuta, is overcome by Adharma. Adharma overcomes the entire community. So Dharma here as I was explaining yesterday, actually, a class I gave in, to Brazil, Portuguese, that um, dharma means the laws of the universe. And there's the macrocosm and the microcosm, and there's, you could say, the megacosm, because the same laws that govern the universe 
uh, also govern your life. In fact, in physical sciences, they call it the principle of uniformity uh, in the sense that, let's say when scientists are studying galaxies or just sort of your basic cosmology, then they assume, they assume that the same physical laws that operate here on earth or in your backyard, those same physical laws are operating throughout the universe. So such as the force of gravity or the speed of light and so on. And so really that same principle, the, the principle of universal laws that govern the universe is true not only in the physical realm, it's true in the moral realm. It's true in the ethical realm. And I was explaining because in yoga, actually I gave a, I gave a class in which I thought I'm going to do something I don't think anyone ever does really. And that is just focus on the yamas and the yamas. And just, and really just talk about that. And it's very interesting because in the Ashtanga yoga, the first two steps, yama and yama, are really moral principles. Asteya, like don't steal. And Sunny um, Asteya kind of means in Sanskrit, thou shalt not steal. And um, all these different things. So why? Because we violate the moral laws of the universe, then we be thrown into confusion, into agitation. <clears throat> or one of them also is uh, brahmachari, which means uh, to be chaste, not to be promiscuous. And it's interesting because, as we know, uh, angas number three and four, uh, that um, asana and pranayama, are obviously for controlling the body. So even if you just consider, because the first four, the first four steps of Ashtanga Yoga are just actually preparation. They're just preparing you to actually do the cognitive work. And then you start with Pratyahara and uh, Dharana and so on. So what's interesting is the steps three and four are uh, about controlling you know, your sitting posture so you don't get cramps and you can sit comfortably for long periods of time, meditate. And then number four is the breathing, pranayama, which clearly means that there is a, there's a vital link between the condition of your body, what your body is doing, and your ability to engage in spiritual meditation. Those two things are obviously connected. Otherwise, where did number two, three and four come from? And so it's interesting, if someone is promiscuous, as we know, promiscuity just sort of like uh, uncontrolled sexual activity or inappropriate sexual activity, it disturbs the body probably like about a thousand times more than not breathing exactly right. I mean, I find I'm able to meditate and I, I'm not saying, and I don't, um, I mean, I couldn't do pranayama to save my life. But, um, <laughs> but still somehow or other, I find I'm able to meditate. And so, I mean, it, it, it would be kind of absurd to think that I'm going to do asanas and pranayama to control the body so I can meditate, but then have no control over bodily activities that disturb the mind a hundred times more. So anyway, there's all that. And so there are laws of the universe. The, the I mean, chastity being sexually appropriate and chaste it's not just about, like they say, the definition of priest. 
some guy with a deep-rooted fear that someone somewhere is having fun. So, you know, that's not the point. It's not just, a, well, that's so much fun, so we can't do it because religion just, you know, it's there to make us miserable. The real point, it's neurological. It's not about religion, it's about neurology. You know, do the, do the neurology. If you study the nature of your nervous system, if you see how your brain is wired and what actually happens neurologically when one is getting sexually aroused, uh, it's kind of a no-brainer that if you want to have a serious spiritual life, it's not that you can, you know, there's sex is completely forbidden, there's marriage and so on, child beginning, but, um, but it's what's neurological, it's scientific, the chastity and goes with meditation and you can't be a serious meditator. You can't be a serious yogi or yogi, you can't be a serious, really anything, except maybe like president of Russia. <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> so that's Arjun's concern, Kulak Sayyid, that if community, because it's communities that preserve principles. For example, my family, I was born in a Jewish family, and um, my father, although, I mean, he never preached to anyone in his life. I mean, I mean, you could, I don't think he ever once in his entire life, like, tried to convince somebody of anything religious. But he did follow the principles, like in certain holy days you fast, and, and he really did it. I mean, he was really, um, so So it's, it's families. You learn about spiritual principles, you learn about morality, you learn about what a decent life is, usually, in your family. And if, and if you're very fortunate, if you do learn, do learn about it in your family, because then you learn at a young age and it gives you an advantage, it's not, you see, you're not always like trying to do bhakti with an accent, you know, in the sense of like you learn a language very early. So, so families are important. Families are really the foundation of, of societies. And if the families are materialistic, then the society is materialistic. And if the families are spiritual, then society becomes spiritual. So Arjun's general points, he's bringing in general principles, which have a lot of validity. He's just misapplying them. So, so Arjun, that's what he says. So then he says, Adharma Vivat Krishna. When, um, when Adharma, Adharma prevails and defeats Dharma, then Pradushanti uh, Kulastriya, the women of the family are polluted. Pradushanti, they're contaminated by uh inappropriate connections and so on so it's interesting why why is arjun mentioning women you know why doesn't he say the men and the women become polluted and uh, which is you know the obvious thing that people say nowadays and actually the purpose of the Hare Krishna movement is to destroy the patriarchy as you know so so the fact that the fact that women are mentioned, I think I, I, I did talk about this last time, but I'll speak mention again, then I want to get into the other verses. And that is because because in the context, in the context that Arjun is 
It's good thing I told that in Russia Joe before she went. Because in the context, in the context that Arjuna is speaking about, um, women are more important. It's not that it's not that he's mentioning women not because they're inferior, but exactly the opposite. Because in this particular context, they're more important. It's actually the women who raise children. I mean, men, men generally don't raise children. You know, there are obviously exceptions to everything, but in general, women raise children. The men are off either in the fields plowing or doing business or, you know, whatever they're doing. And it's the women who actually raise the children. And so, um, and also, as I said, uh, I'm afraid to bring in science here because we live in a world in which extremists on both sides, left and right, regularly deny science. Uh, because if, if you're an extremist, it means that you put ideology ahead of science. And if science contradicts your ideology, it's because the scientists are all fascists or something. So, but actually real science, what the studies show is that women are more impacted by promiscuity than men. They've done, I mean, study, this is science, so, you know, don't kill the messenger. What they find is that the more sexual partners a woman has before a marriage, the more likely it is, sort of an exact proportion, the more likely it is that she will leave the marriage. And apparently didn't find that so much for men who are kind of hopeless anyway. <laughs> so, whatever they do, they're kind of hopeless. So. so, therefore, if you put these two facts together, if you put these two facts together that women generally raise children, obviously the father plays an important role. I don't want to minimize that. A good father is a very important component in a successful, in the successful raising of a child. But the women are more important because the women actually raise the children. And, uh, and women are more impacted negatively by promiscuity. That's just uh, the way the world is. So therefore, that's Arjuna's concern. It's not that you could say, well, women are, you know, like sometimes we read women are more easily seduced. I'm not sure that's the case. It's, um, I mean, men, you know, it takes a lot to get a man, to get a man aroused, like, like you say the word the, or if you turn the lights on, or if you cough, or, you know, I mean, it takes a lot to make a man lusty. <laughs> so, So the way I understand this, it's not about you know, who's better and who's worse. It's not about who's more easily misled. I think it's just about practical neurology and sociology and about trying to preserve future generations or trying to raise good generations so the world doesn't go more to hell than it already has. So that's that verse. Whoops. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> you know about my multiple personalities, right? <laughs>
So the next verse is then, so Pradushanti Kulastriya, the, the, the women of the community are, are contaminated. And then Strishu Dushtasu Varsneya, when women are contaminated or polluted or just whatever word you, then Jayate Varnasankara. Here Arjun introduces the notion of Varnasankara. Prabhupada translates it non-literally as unwanted progeny. Literally in Sanskrit, it means Varna mixing. Varna means Varnas, like Brahmanas, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. And Sankara means mixing in Sanskrit. In other words, a higher class woman marries a lower class man and uh, or a lower class woman marries a higher class man because now, what's interesting here is that Arjun doesn't say the women are the cause of the Varna Sankara. So again, you can read in all kinds of things here which make women look bad, but that's not actually what Arjuna is saying. What Arjuna is actually saying is that when women are contaminated, uh, then this Varna, you get Varna mixing arises. So, and again, Arjun doesn't say it's it's the woman's fault and doesn't say it's the men's fault. It's just that's what men and women do. And so you could say, what's the problem here with Varna mixing? Because we live in an egalitarian age in which we pretend that everyone's equal. I mean, people are equal in terms of, let's say, equal rights, equal justice before the law. But to say people have equal abilities is obviously not true. I mean, there are competitive colleges, you know, where most, you know, 90 three percent of the applicants don't get in or something and people compete for jobs and most of the people don't get the good jobs and most of the people don't get into the good colleges and most of the teams don't win the world series and most of the teams don't win the super bowl and most of the teams don't win the nba championship or the world cup going international here so um it's just you know it's in the, it's in the real world People have different levels of abilities. People have different levels of intelligence. That's a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that people have dramatically different levels of intelligence, and we can measure that. So the purpose, the, the arranged marriages, which also, I mean, in, in this ancient culture, we see very clearly in the Mahabharata and Bhagavatam that men and women sometimes eloped actually sometimes especially the royal class so it, it's it's in fact it's listed as one of the vedic forms of marriage as just kind of eloping in fact probably the two most famous elopers in vedic history are arjuna and krishna's own sister subhadra who eloped <laughs> of course it was an appropriate marriage but um Still, they just ran, you know, drove off in a chariot. You know, I guess with a little, not without the sign in the back, you know, the cans on the back and signs says, you know, California <laughs> bus. But they did. <laughs> they they did just ride off in a chariot. So, so these appropriate marriage, but even that, they they married within their varna. So, what's the big deal? about marrying within your varna and not ha and not mixing the varnas which is the literal meaning of varna sankara 
The point is, it is what I call sort of organic genetic engineering. Where a society is consciously creating super people. So that if you have a Brahmin community, that um, if you have a Brahmin community that marries within their community, endogamous marriage, to use the anthropology term, as opposed to exogamous, you will be tested on those words. Stop for a second, everyone want to write that down? Endogamous, <laughs> exogamous. Anyway. So, um, you develop very, very, like, like these super Brahmins and super Kshatriyas. And since the Brahmins have to teach everyone, provide everyone knowledge, and the Kshatriyas have to protect everyone, having super Kshatriyas, warriors, governors, and super Brahmins is not a bad idea. In fact, it's interesting because, I mean, the proof that these things really exist out there. It's not just, Prabhupada came to America and he kind of, he opened it up for everybody. It was like, uh, you know, everyone had a chance to become a Brahmin. Because in India, the, the system of these four classes, it fossilized, it became degraded into a strictly hereditary system. And inevitably, you know, when you have children, you know, one, one's a lemon, sometimes two are lemons. And it's not it's always clear how you make kitty lemonade, you know, how you make lemonade out of your, out of your useless kid. So, no offense to anyone. So, um, <laughs> but Prabhupada just opened it up to everyone. Because we're in India, it's very strict. Like you have to be born in this family. Or, so Prabhupada just said, you know, prices are slashed. Everyone can become a Brahmin. Anyone that wants to just step right up and you can be a Brahmin, which is, in India is a big deal. It's just very high social class. And so, of course, that was the late 60s, early 70s. You know, the Beatles went to Rishikesh and Jimi Hendrix had a universal form on his album cover. And so, you know, thousands of people apparently heeded the call. Thousands of people joined the Hare Krishna movement all around the world, literally all around the world, thousands and thousands and thousands, who actually became like monks, you know, they wore that, uh, you know, that, that amazingly fashionable conservative dress that some devotees wear. The ultimate fashion statement, right? And so, so thousands and thousands of people joined, but lo and behold, over time, it turned out the overwhelming majority, in fact, were not Brahmins. I mean, they were given a chance. Everyone got the same chance. But if, if, you, if you ask a simple question, which would require a statistical answer, if you ask the question of the thousands and thousands of young people, and a few older people that Prabhupada initiated, how many of them were able to sustain a Brahminical life? And the percentage is going to be um, very low. I mean, it's going to be single digits. We'll just put it in those terms. It's going to be a single digit. The percentage. 
And so what that shows is that there really uh, is such a thing as a born Brahmin. And so when you have somebody who's just born with those qualities, and then that person gets the proper training, like they're born scientists, they're born mathematicians, they're born artists, they're born dancers, they're born athletes. And it's, of course, and then if they get the proper training. Oh. So then if, then if they get the proper training, if you have the natural ability and you get the training, you, you excel. And so the, the, that's what Arjuna is concerned about. He's talking about actually a very scientific study, uh, society. For, I mean, there's so many things that were much more scientific back then. Take, for one example, language. Take the alphabet. The Roman alphabet that we use, if you're a linguist, if you actually know phonology, the English alphabet is just total chaos. Whereas the Sanskrit alphabet is actually a, is a scientific phonetic chart. I take the English alphabet. It starts out with A, the way we pronounce it, which is a diphthong. It's, it's actually two vowels, A and E, A. And then you have B, which is a soft labial consonant with the long I sound B and then C, which is a sibilant. It just, it goes all over the place. Whereas in Sanskrit, you get all the vowels, Sanskrit alphabet. You get first the simple vowels, then you get the diphthongs and the triphthongs, like simple vowel sounds, uh, e, u, and so on. And then after that, you, you, if, you look at, if you look at the Sanskrit alphabet chart, you get what are called in English phonology, the gutturals, like ka, ka, ga, na, and Anyway, it's all actually scientific because it'll just go on for 30 more seconds. If you can't stand anymore, just raise your hand. <laughs> but the way, we, the, way we, the way we make consonants is that your tongue presses against the palate at a certain point and then releases the air. And then like, for example, uh, not the tongue, actually, I'm, I'm sorry. The uh, you, if you say ka, if you say ka, and notice where you're uh, closing your mouth up at the uh, back in the back ka, and then if you say cha, the point of contact is moving toward the front of your mouth, and then if you say ta, it's coming even even farther forward, ta, and then ta, and then you say pa, it's actually it's labial because it comes out your lips. So when you make consonants, they start way in the back of your palate. And they, and they move forward to your lips. And so they knew all this in Sanskrit. And so the alphabet is a phonetic chart. And there's hard consonants, there's soft consonants, there are aspirated, unaspirated cons consonants like, um, like for example, uh, in, in the Sanskrit alphabet, you have ka, just a simple k and then kh, ka. And so in English, we have all these things in English. We just don't, no one knows it, unless you're a phonologist. Like for example, if you say the word Kate, like Katie, if, and, and, compare, and compare the K sound you make when you say Kate to the K sound you make when you say skate. When you say Kate, you're breathing out more. When you say skate, you're not. And so in the word Kate, it's an aspirated K, and in the word skate, 
It's an unaspirated case. So they knew all this. And actually, the Sanskrit alphabet chart is a scientific phonology lesson. So, I mean, I mean, in terms of linguistics, they were far, far, far ahead of us. And in terms of, you know, they didn't have this romanticist idea that, you know, sexual intercourse, especially in the case of reproduction, is a totally private act. No, it's not. Because when you reproduce, you bring, you know, a little angel or a little monster into the world or something in between. <laughs> and, um, and then society has to live with that person. If, if, if children are not begotten under appropriate circumstances, not raised properly, then they will, you know, they may kill someone, they prey on society, they may kill themselves, they be, may become dysfunctional and therefore society has to pay for them. So I already went over this in another class that when you are engaged in a behavior which powerfully affects other people, your behavior is not just private. Yeah. And, and when it negatively impacts society, society has a rational interest in it. And so therefore, if we can get past the actually recent idea, it's a very recent idea, this sort of like stupidly romantic idea that when you reproduce children or have sexual intercourse, that, I mean, obviously it's private in the sense, yeah, you know, close the door, pull the curtains. Yeah, I mean, it's private. But the point is the impacts are not private. Especially, and even, even if, if sexual intercourse does not uh, bring about a child, it still impacts society because the statistic I already gave you that in a promiscuous society, people are unable to sustain relationships in marriage just you know do the neurology go read the science and when people have trouble sustaining marriages children are brought up under less than optimum conditions and we know that when children are brought up in broken families some of them turn out wonderfully but a disproportionate number of them end up uh well to use a colloquial screwed up and by that, I mean, they're much more likely to commit suicide. They're much more likely to commit violent crime, uh, to be impoverished and therefore have to tax other citizens to pay for them. And, and there's a whole list of negative impacts. So therefore, the idea that when a man and woman have sexual contact, it's nobody's business. What about all the people who are affected by it? And as I said, the battle cry of the American Revolution was no taxation without representation. And certain mm -hmm. behaviors tax society, literally tax society. They end up with innocent people being killed. So this, this romantic idea was really, it, it, it's very, it's only about 200 years old, really. Or at most, you know, 250 years old out of, you know, tens of thousands of years of human history. In the last 200, 250 years, they have this romantic idea that it's just nothing matters but love. You know, even if it, you know, all the numbers show we will get divorced, we will screw up our kids and we will be miserable, but none of that matters. So to call our society a rational or a scientific so, uh, a society is what they call in Spanish, un chiste de mal gusto. You know, it's just a bad joke. But then again, as Hegel points out, 
people are notoriously unable to objectively judge the world in which they live because we're so immersed in it. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're left or right, maybe you don't like people on the other side, people are political, but in terms of an overall evaluation of our society, people generally are not able to do that. It's just like if you're inside a body and you're feeling some pain or something, you know, unless you're really an incredible doctor, you should probably go to a doctor. And even if you are a doctor, you should probably go to a doctor. Even yoga teachers take yoga classes, right? And so in the same way, uh, unless you're really, really trained in many ways to be able to look at contemporary history objectively, you're probably missing a lot. And I bring up all that because Arjun is not just making crazy statements, Varna mixing hub, that's, you know, that's, we don't do that. He's actually speaking from the point of view of uh, a valid sociology. He's not just making crazy statements. So then Arjun, but Arjun's going to get into this. He's on a roll here, as we say present time. Sankaro. So mixing. He just says the Sankaro, mixing. He means Varna mixing. Sankaro Narakayeva can only lead to hell. That's what he says. Uh, um, mixing only leads to hell. Kula Gnanam, for the killers of communities and for the community. Because obviously there's like this abominable karma for people that cause the destruction of community dharma. So they're ruined by karma. And then the communities themselves are ruined. Patanti Pitero Yesham, the forefathers fall, literally. And this is very interesting. There was actually this, this is a fascinating concept that you may not have learned about. And that is why do people worship forefathers? which is very prominent in Asia, by the way, China, Japan, India, the West kind of, you know, they don't care that much, but but in, especially in the East, in Asia, most of Asia, they really, really take their ancestors much more seriously. So the idea was that if you're born in a good family, if you're born in a good family, their, the Vedic culture has built in incentives to get you to perpetuate the family moral principles. For example, my parents were born a generation. They went through the depression, they went through World War II, and they were very they were very self-controlled, that whole generation. There was I know in the community I lived in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of families. I didn't know anyone was divorced. And um and so they were, you know, they were very disciplined. They did their duty. They weren't, it wasn't all about me that, you know, it's not like I'm perfect the way I am. I mean, they would have, if you said that, they would have thought that, you know, you need psychiatric attention. You know, to say something like, I, I, I'm perfect the way I am. I mean, who's such a fool to say that? I mean, we all need to advance. We all need to progress. So anyway, um, but my generation uh, kind of deviated, you know, the notorious much loved and hated boomers. So um, so the Vedic culture had these built-in incentives to get people to follow family traditions, which were supposed to be Vedic traditions. And that is when your, when your, when your elders pass away, say your grandparents, if they themselves had led, that's harsh. If they, if, his name is harsh. 
So if your if your ancestors or your four your grandparents, whatever, great grandparents, if they live good lives, then they go to this place called Pitra Loka, which is the the world of the ancestors. And the idea is that they can stay up there. Their ability to stay in that higher world depends on the people who come after them and their family performing the Shraddha ceremony, which is a ceremony which, which you offer to the ancestors. And so that way, if you have children, you are very, very highly motivated to get your children to follow the Vedic principles and to perform these ceremonies and rituals, follow these principles, because if they do, if you can get your descendants, your children, to follow these principles, then uh, you get to stay in these higher worlds. But if in your family people stop following this, you come crashing down to the earth, which is kind of a punishment. So, so therefore, both the elders, I mean, they were, they were really highly motivated to not neglect in the education of their children and grandchildren to not neglect these higher principles. Now, in Krishna consciousness, we don't do that because the best thing you can do for yourself and for everyone else, you know, the best thing you can do is become Krishna conscious. Because if you become Krishna conscious, you can not only keep your ancestors aloft in these higher worlds, but you can actually lead them to liberation. But that's what Arjuna's talking about. That's why he says the forefathers fall. Because if people start doing bad marriages where, okay, well, I come from a Sudra background, and this, you know, we don't do that ceremony where I came from a Brahmin background, and we do this. I mean, it's just like typically you get marriages, but say like one the man and woman are from different religions, and often the kid just kind of falls through the cracks. Or, or okay, the kid chooses, or maybe you do it with the mother. And so it's, you know, it's, it's not the same. I'm not saying that all people in those situations turn out badly. Some of them turn out very well. But I'm just saying that, that when you don't have, a, you, when the parents aren't really united, they haven't been trained the same way, they don't share the same culture, then uh, it, 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 it's a big problem. It also leads to divorce. I, I say probably, I mean, the main problem I'd say the main cause of divorce in the modern world is cultural. Because it used to be, I know my parents' generation, if a man and woman married, they knew exactly what their duties are. There were no surprises. The man knew exactly what he could do, what he couldn't do, what his duty was, the woman knew what her, and so everyone agreed. They wouldn't have big arguments because everyone agreed on, on, what, on what they had to do and what the other person had to do. There was cultural agreement. But nowadays, where everyone kind of, you sort of like roll your own culture, you know, everyone just, you invent your own culture. I mean, you get all these incredibly naive, pretentious people in the world who actually think they can invent a functional culture. And so, you know, everyone just does what they want and everyone is free and everyone is blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and, and, and most of these people are not very bright don't have a lot of, they just don't, they have very little wisdom. And so you get a husband and wife and the wife says, well, I can do this. And the man says, well, no, you know, I'm not happy. Yeah, but I, I have a right to do that. They don't agree on culture. 
They don't agree on the rules of the game. You can't play a soccer game if the two teams disagree on what the rules are. And so having a marriage where the man and woman don't even agree on the rules of the game, you know, we'll work things out as we come to them. Yeah, and usually often working things out means going to a divorce lawyer. Or people don't even bother getting married because, you know, why bother? Why not just, or why not just friendship with benefits, as they say. So this idea, people have this idea nowadays, they can just invent human culture. And they can't. First of all, they don't have the intelligence. Secondly, even if you are intelligent, you can't do it. Because, because it takes, frankly, it takes centuries of life experience to come up with these things. You know, centuries, it, it's just like you take these giant redwood trees that took thousands of years to grow and some moron, you know, comes and wants to chop a town. What Ronald Reagan famously said, oh, you've seen, you've seen one giant redwood, you've seen them all. That was, anyway, no comment. So, <laughs> So, I mean, just like we all feel the tragedy of a tree that took thousands of years to grow and then some idiot comes and just cuts it down. What about cultural principles that took centuries or thousands of years to develop? And then one generation, oh, no, that's just nonsense. We don't have to do that. I'm free. They don't know what they're doing. So, I mean, we live in an age of just mass ignorance. And that's why people are so miserable. That's why, I mean, they take polls. 80% of Americans think we're going in the wrong direction. But everyone, of course, thinks that my neighbors are going in the wrong direction. So here, here in Krishna consciousness, here is, this is called Sanatana Dharma. Arjun uses that term, eternal principles. They've already figured it out. You know, it's like the old saying, if everything else fails, read the, read the directions. And so in these literatures, we have the directions. So we don't, we don't have to you know, invent our own culture. We can't do it anyway. And when, when people you know, try to get together, stay together in a relationship and a marriage, you know, the fact, it works or not, it, it, it really is about whether they share culture. Can they agree on the most important things? And if they don't, it's a ticking time bomb. Of course, when people are totally drugged with endorphins, you know, DUI, with love endorphins, they just, you know, these drugs just overwhelm all of your common sense. So, you know, friends don't let friends, uh, you know, drink endorphins and, and drive. <laughs> anyway, so, so Arjun says here, Mixing uh, leads only to hell, both for the killers of communities and the community. The, the forefathers fall. The forefathers of these people fall. Because the, 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 the rites, the rituals, Pindodika, in which you offer, Pindodika is like a little, um, like a little ball food, you know, a little ball you offer, and Udika's water. And so lupta means they're interrupted or uh, because these offerings are interrupted or they're ruined, people stop doing them. And then the forefathers fall, which I already explained. 
So then, dosayri tai kulaganam, by these mistakes, by these bad deeds of literally of family killers, of community killers, destroyers of communities, varna sankara karakai, um, which is um, by these mistakes, which are caused by varna mixing. Because you people marry, we have different sets of duties, different understandings of life, different, you know, you could say in a sense, religious activities. And, you know, if they want to keep peace in the family, okay, we have to compromise. This means you end up not really doing either of them very well. And then culture just collapses to be replaced by hedonism. Everyone just out there like a pig trying to get whatever they can for themselves. Also known as capitalism also known as consumerism. It's a fancy word for pig. The shadow knows. So, and then utsatinte jati dharma. Arjuna says the dharmas associated with different birth communities are literally are destroyed. All these dharmas that civilize and regulate human beings, all these rites and ceremonies are, are destroyed. I could say a lot more of modern culture. It's just like, I mean, where do you stop? But I will stop. So, and then Kula Dharma, Shastra, and then the perennial family dharmas are ruined. So then Arjuna says, Utsanna Kula Dharma Nang Manusha Nang Janardhan, O Janardhana Krishna, Naraka Niyatang Vaso, the perpetual residence for those who destroy community and family dharmas. Um, for those people, O Krishna, their residence is perpetually in hell or is fixed in hell. In other words, they're going to hell for this. Hell is not eternal, but very unpleasant. So, Bhavati Anushushrama, and Arjuna says, this is the way it is, and Anushushrama, we have heard this from authorities. So Arjuna says, this is not my idea, you know, we have heard this from, from authorities. And then the last three verses of this chapter, and we will have completed. Aho batamahat papa. Aho bata means like, oh my God. It's um, it's like, oh, he said, uh, what great sin, kartum yevasitavayam, we are determined to commit. What great sin we are determined to commit. Yadrajasugalovena, out of a greed for royal happiness. Again, Arjuna has totally misunderstood why Krishna is doing this. It's not to enjoy, it's not out of greed for royal happiness or opulence, it's to save the world from injustice. So we are prepared, we are like, because they're, the battle's gonna start any second. Here we are prepared to kill our own people because of our greed for royal pleasures. And then Arjun makes his last uh, 
erroneous statement. He said, Jadimama Pratikaram, Shastram, Shastra Panaya, it would be better for me if the sons of Dhritarashtra killed me in battle with weapons in their hands, killed me with no weapon. In other words, if I just put down my weapons, unresisting, not fighting back, and if they with their weapons in hand kill me, uh, unresisting, he said, that would be a greater good for me. That would be a greater good for me. If I just don't resist and they kill me, which is kind of the philosophy of the, uh, you know, the pacifist, right? So Sanjay Vacha, so Arjun, this great warrior, the greatest warrior in the world, suddenly has become a pacifist. So Sanjay Uvacha, even Uttarjunak Sankhya Ritopa Stavupavisha, Visitja Sashanam Trapam, Shokasam Vigna Manasam. So having spoken thus on the battlefield, Arjuna, sitting on the chariot, oh, actually, uh, situated on the chariot, he sat down, Upavisha. He just, he just sat down, couldn't even stand. Visrija casting aside his bow and arrows, Shokasam Vigna Manasa, his mind completely disturbed with grief. So that's the end of the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita. It's, uh, it's an amazing book. Just more huh? Just more 17. Just, just, we just have to end in more 17. More 17? No. It's just the first one. Oh, 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 oh the other 17. Yeah. There's seven chapter. Right, right. Absolutely. So, any questions on these topics? <laughs> yes, please. Thank you so much for the class, Amorish. Um, so, it, we are coming from like different cultures um, we're already like mixed up like nowadays how can we like Como keep no. it up yeah like try to like do we have to like really like be very careful with our partner or we just lost hope about it <laughs> yeah probably the best thing is just lose, like, give up all hope that's that's really what i'm trying to explain to you <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, I mean, it's a very good question. Um, of course, none of us are perfect. What's that old saying? If I was just a little more humble, I'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's true. <laughs> So um, we have to be guided by these stars. We have to be, we have to know what is right and wrong. And then all of us, we just, we do the best we can, but we have to know what is right and wrong. And nowadays in the age of collective narcissism where everyone is perfect the way they are, 
You can't say that anything is wrong because it might negatively impact someone's inflated self-esteem. Although you are allowed to say something's wrong if it's not politically correct. But if it is politically correct, you're not allowed to say it's wrong. Those, those basically the rules. So, um, yeah, we have to try our best because that's what Krishna consciousness really is about. It's bhakti yoga. You know, bhakti, of course, but bhakti yoga means you practice. Aristotle said that you develop virtue by practicing it. So in the name of just our inflated egos, we shouldn't pretend that what's right is not right or what's wrong is right. We should have the courage to face reality. We should have the courage to see what's right and wrong, even if we don't have the strength to always do what's right. But we're not doing any favor to ourselves by pretending that what's wrong is right or that what's right is just sort of optional. You know, we should have the courage and the strength to see what's right and then and then start walking in that direction. No one's perfect and it, it takes a while. But, but if you don't admit to yourself what's really right and wrong, you can't even go in the right direction. So Krishna, you know, we have a huge advantage because Krishna, as in the SPOG, you know, the Supreme Personality of God. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> So, yeah, that's why the real qualification to advance in Krishna consciousness is not that you be perfect now, not that, you, you know, you have all qualifications. It's just you have a basic honesty. You're not going to deny the truth because it doesn't feed your ego. And nowadays, you know, everyone's treated like a little delicate snowflake. So if you breathe too hard on it, it'll disintegrate. But the point is, uh, we should openly admit to ourselves what our strong points are, areas we need to improve. You know, what areas really, maybe there's some things in our life that are not appropriate. And whether or not you can get rid of it right away, things that are inappropriate and destructive and harmful to you, we should at least have the integrity and the honesty to admit the truth and then start working toward it. Otherwise, you're just putting vanity above truth. Yes, ma'am. So I have a question about that term, Varna Sankara. Yes. And about um, the explanation of how that dilutes the, the, the appearance and the power of the, the structure of society. And I was thinking because, and I just want to put a couple of examples and just want to ask you what your thoughts on. Um, so the argument is that when there's interbreeding in a way when when things are mixing, the power is diluted. And just from uh, 
couple of things that I've seen in seeds, in animals, and also in humans. Um, in many sciences, when they're creating super seeds, they actually take seeds from different species and introduce so that the power is strengthened. So does this in animals, right, too? And in humans, when there's a lot of interbreeding, um, there's more, there's a, a, a higher chance of like diseases showing up. So that's why. Um, when higher chance in what case? Of like of diseases being like of genetic diseases. Right. In which case? Manifested. In which case? Um, for example. When they don't mix. When they do mix. When they do mix. So for right. example, cousins. Uh, right. Appropriate. There's a higher chance of of genetic diseases being. Uh, right. Manifested. So I just wanted to, to ask about that argument. Okay, good. That's good. Um, I would say the benefits of, let's say, two people marrying, not just being identical. Those benefits are there anyway. Because, for example, let's say, like, take, take, take Eudistir and Dropody, just to give an example. Um, Eudistir was sort of a, almost like two Brahminical. He was supposed to be a warrior and a king, but he was always kind of philosophizing about everything and wanted to take a humble approach. And then Jopani, he married Jopani, who was, you know, a great woman, also fiery. And, and it was good for him. So... The benefits of, let's say, bringing different qualities together, those benefits are there, first of all, even within a particular varna. That's the first thing I'll say. And secondly, if, because there are cases of varna sankara in the literature, and if, if the combination somehow, because not all combinations are good, you know, in botany or in zoology or anything else, some combinations are catastrophic and just cause the extinction of both. So, yeah, we do have to be open to, because let's say, for example, someone is born in a Vaisha, let's say a man is born in a Vaisha community, which is sort of mercantile or farmer community, but has very Brahminical qualities. Then it's if you judge by the qualities themselves, not just their official status. And, and also people are different. And, and I think even today, in marriages, you know, I think the best marriages are marriages in which the two are complementary and not just identical. So I think the principle of complementarity is a valid principle. And it, it occurs, complementarity, even among people from the same varna. Where the mix is, is complementary, not just. Actually, was there, there was a, there's one famous story. There was a uh, there was a lady. This is actually in the old Upanishads. It's a very ancient story. There was a lady named Jabala, and um, she was um, promiscuous, or and you know I don't know if she got paid for what she was doing, but she was definitely out and about, let us say. And so she had a son, 
who got a matronym, a name based on his mother's name, which is Jaibali from Jabala. And so this Jaibali, he had a very strong Brahminical nature, even though his mother was like really at the bottom of society, almost like unclassified. You know, I mean, you couldn't say she's Sudra. She's kind of like, you know, unclassified so low. And so he said to his mother one day when he was young that um, I want to go study with a great sage. And it's just like today, if you fill out a college application, you know, the first box is last name. So it was the same thousands of years ago. You're like, what's your Gotra? And, and Gotra actually meant, you know, your last name. What's your, what's your family line? So his mother said, that's an interesting question. And then, because um, he asked me, who's my father? And she said, she said, yeah, I wish I knew. So, you know, when a woman doesn't know who the father of her child is, that kind of tells you a lot about her lifestyle. When she doesn't, she's not sure exactly which guy is the father of her child. So she said, well, I don't really know who your father is, so... They ask, she's a simple lady. If they ask you that, just say that your mother's name is Jabala and therefore you're Jaibali. He said, okay. So he went off and he found this very this famous guru. And the guru said, you know, what, where do you come from? What, who's, your, who's your father? And so it's, the funny thing is this Jaibali exactly repeated his mother said, that's a very interesting question. And um, I asked my mother that very question. <laughs> and she said she wasn't who, sure who my father was, but since her name is Jabala, you can call me Jaibali. And so the guru was amazed at the honesty of the boy. Because in that very conservative society, it was like, you know, there's nothing you could say which would put you in a worse light. And he was just completely honest, never considered lying never considered half-lying, just, just told the truth. And then the guru said, you are so honest. You are so honest that you are actually a Brahmin. And he accepted him and that Jaivali became a famous Vedic sage. So it's more about the qualities. Absolutely. About the social economic status of class person. Absolutely. In fact, Krishna says that over and over again. He says, chapter Varnya Mayasjastam Guna Karma Vibhagasa, that I have created this Varna system according to the qualities of people, you know, the qualities of the person and the karma, the way they work, their natural inclinations to work. And then Krishna brings up this topic again in chapter 18 of the Gita, where he says that um, he describes the duties of all the four Varnas. And in each case, he says that their duties are. Uh, Sovavaja, born of their nature, not of their birth, of their nature. So to say that people should, but of course when people are lusty and sexually attracted to someone else, even when they think it's, you know, L-O-V-E, then, um, then uh, you know, their brains kind of turn to liquid and they can make inappropriate decisions because you know the brain shuts down too many endorphins it's like it you know it's like when your car gets flooded and the motor won't start you know the motor gets flooded so when endorphins flood your mind 
basically your rational abilities shut shut off. And so, Sucedian las mejores sombradas. So, um, yeah, so it's so even among people who may not be born officially in the same environment, but if their nature is compatible. And again, what you're talking about generally is the advantages of complementarity rather than just identity. And that's there. That's definitely there. People, I think people back then, many of them were intelligent enough to marry someone who they felt would just kind of maybe balance me or compliment me as opposed to just being the same as me. But then again, you have to make sure the other person is uh, okay with complementarity. Because if the other person is not looking for complementarity, is looking for unison, and you were looking for complementarity, that's not going to work either. So nowadays, in an age when people don't share culture, everyone kind of invents their own. Um, you need a lot of information before making a decision to share your life with someone. Otherwise, you may just share your divorce lawyers. Thank you for answering that question. Sure. And just one last point. Cultural sharing also doesn't imply the same personality type. There's people of widely different personality types can share a culture. Just like let's say people are on a, a baseball team to give a sort of not uniquely American example, but hasn't really caught on so much elsewhere outside the Latin America and um, Japan. But um, you know, people can have in any sport, say soccer, people can have very different styles, very different ways of playing, but there's the same rules for everyone. So having the same rules and the same basic culture in no way implies that people are identical. So that's the answer. Yes, expect a harsh question here. <laughs> Thanks for wanting to apologize. Um, could you, you mentioned how our becoming devotees are more inclined toward cultivating a relationship can save our ancestors also. Can you talk a little bit more about that, given that they've already gone before us? Yeah, but they have a future too. I mean, they're not gone. They're just, they just, they left this planet, but they're as alive as you are. And they face the same uncertainty about the future as you do. So Krishna throws that in. It's kind of like a nice little incentive. Hey, don't worry about all you know, all your ancestors. Just surrender to me, and I'll, you know, I'll take care of it. So it's really, it's a very nice gesture on Krishna's part. Yes, ma'am. I have a very simple question, and perhaps I have heard of the explanation before, but I guess I'm looking for validation or really to hear from you. So we all know Arjuna is a very elevated soul, and uh, for him to be in such a confused, disturbed, and, and as you mentioned so many times, 
um, have so many erroneous statements? Is that really just for the sake of the the the, the Bhagavad Gita yes. so much to happen? Yes. Is that yeah. like Krishna provoked that in into Yeah, yeah. Happened? That yeah, that's the general generally that's the way the devotees understand it. That's the way Prabhupada taught that because Krishna wanted this Gita to come about and so he chose his devotee to make the big mistake. So that because he knew being a devotee that he would accept correction he would accept the enlightening explanation thank you yes i have one last question go for it about that the word farna yes um so i wanted to learn a little bit more about the different meanings of varna yes because i know that it's used a lot in the way of categorizing society perhaps. but it's also i also understand that it's it's the quality of a person varna um or am i how would you how would you <laughs> uh, describe the meaning of varna? well varna can mean color like Krishna Varnam, color of Krishna. So um, there was an academic theory for a while that therefore this Vedic culture was racist because it talks about Varnas, but then scholars were a little more on the ball, pointed out, no, that's not wrong because uh, that's, that's wrong because if you look at the actual Vedas, um, it's not used to mean color. It's used to mean, and, and, and the differences between varnas are not racial, they're, um, they're cultural, <coughs> cultural differences. So it can mean that. Varnayanti, there's a verb, varn, varna, which means to, to speak or describe. So yeah, it has different meanings. But in this context, Arjuna is clearly talking about the social divisions, the vocational divisions. Anything else? Going, going. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you for attending. Mm -hmm. I just appreciated that take on the last few verses of Gita. Not so much a question, but just an appreciation. Thank you. So I guess I'll end this here. Thank you all, those of you who are watching digitally. Hare Krishna.